Hi, I'm Jeremy Ullman, and this is Abstract, a podcast where I'll be interviewing graduate students to learn about their research in a way that makes it accessible, bringing into the discussion aspects that are fun but challenging, covering a day in the life, and also just throwing around cool theories and groundbreaking findings that they've come across in their readings. My goal here is to tap into the wealth of information swirling around graduate students' minds, culminating from months to even years of research and reading. We're going to harness that knowledge together, one episode at a time. On today's episode, we discuss a range of topics, including, but not limited to, the emergence of behavior from brain activity, sensation, perception, and memory, and different memory systems, and the famous case studies of HM and London taxi drivers. Episode 18 is happening right now, so let's go. Our guest today is Jamie Snyte, a PhD student in clinical psychology at McGill University. He recently completed his Master of Science in the Integrated Program in Neuroscience, or IPN, studying the neural correlates of episodic memory within the medial temporal lobe. His current research will extend the work from his Master of Science to clinical populations. He'll be looking at deficits in episodic memory in individuals at risk for Alzheimer's disease and deficits in autobiographical memory for those suffering from depression. He's interested in investigating sex differences in susceptibility for these disorders, and the neural targets for the cognitive processes that are dysfunctional in these cases. So that's a great, super dense intro. We're going to get into all of this very shortly. So let's welcome Jamie onto the podcast. How's it going? Hey, Jeremy. How you doing? I'm good. This is a very exciting episode. This is going to be our first episode testing out a new format. So now that it is September, people are back in school. A lot of the listeners are students themselves, and there's not a lot of commuting going on. And there's less and less free time as workloads increase. So we're going to try and reduce the total runtime of episodes to maybe something between 30 and 40 minutes as opposed to the full hour. So to do that, we're going to change up the way that we flow from topic to topic. And the general format is going to be in a three levels of explanations type of way. So we're going to start off explaining things at a super basic level related to Jamie's research. And then we're going to build up in complexity. And at the end of this episode, we're going to be talking in super deep levels of complexity. Sounds good. All right, cool. I'm excited to see how this goes. And I'm excited to start from the ground up. How is it that you ended up getting a position as a PhD in clinical psychology? I'm aware that it's a very difficult program to get into. What kind of accolades did you need to get to where you are right now? It was definitely tough and stressful, uh, like applying and seeing if I'd get in. And I think the from like people, other people I know, the experience can vary like between individuals. So for me, I did my undergrad in psych at McGill with a minor in neuroscience, and I was kind of more interested in going like the research route to like become a scientist one day or researcher. And so then after that, kind of the next logical step was to do my master's. Um, and so I was doing uh, undergrad research in this like memory neuroimaging lab, and so I continued there for my master's. Um, And then I guess a year into my master's, my supervisor was like, okay, so you want to stay for a PhD? What are we doing? I was 
partially interested in, in staying in the lab, continuing with research. I was partially looking to maybe go elsewhere to work with more kind of clinical populations, but still in like a research kind of program. But I guess th- towards the end of my undergrad and in that first year of my master's, I was kind of getting signs that I should maybe look into a more clinical program. So I can I can tell you, I guess, how I decided to go that way, if that's if that's what you're interested in. But yeah, like if you thought that you wanted to do more of a research route, then you could have just done a straight up thesis based master's or PhD. Yeah. So in the first year of my master's, I like attended, I presented a poster actually at the symposium for Brenda Milner's birthday. Her hundredth? Her hundredth birthday. Yeah. It was like the symposium. Amazing. Yeah, it was super cool. So a lot of her grad students, like former students who are, a lot of them are professors um, and a lot of them are clinicians actually came to McGill and there was this whole two-day long thing with a bunch of presentations and they kind of told stories and they talked about their research really cool and like kind of this like theme that kept coming up was how important she emphasized working with patients was to do the best science that you could you wanted to make sure you were learning from these patients um, and then make sure that your your work was kind of informing treatment so that kind of like struck something in me and I was like oh this is cool but I didn't really understand because a lot of them were researchers but they also seem to be clinicians, and I didn't really understand how you could kind of do both. So I transitioned from an experimental master's to a clinical PhD. So the program I'm just starting right now, um, I'll be doing similar research, but I'll also I'm also kind of learning how to work with patients, and I'll get to do some internships and be trained in that field. Okay, so let's hop into it. I'm going to pretend in a slightly more formal version of our Explain Like I'm Five segments I'm going to be five years old, essentially, somewhere between the age of five and 10. And I want you to explain to me the foundations of knowledge that I will need in in order to understand how you will explain your research at higher levels. What kind of background information do I need moving forward? Yeah. In your head, if you're a five-year-old, yeah, in your head, there's this mushy gray thing. And inside of there, there's all the stuff you know. So that mushy gray thing, which is your brain, helps you kind of experience the world. So you're able to sense things because of it. You're able to perceive things because of it. And you're also able to remember things because of it. So we know from a lot of previous work that if you, for whatever reason, have a a part of your brain surgically removed, that you might become impaired in something. So you might, you can go blind if you get hit in the head in in a bad way. You might also lose your memory. And so the research that I'm doing, I guess, uh, focuses mainly on looking at which parts of the brain are important for different kinds of memory. Okay. So if you poke my eyeballs out, I can become blind. But also if you smack me on the right part of my head, I can suffer the same consequences. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So presumably the mechanism by which I lose my vision when you pluck my eyeballs out of my face versus hitting me on a specific part of my head are going to the mechanisms behind those two processes will be very different for sure yeah yeah to me as a five-year-old how would you explain the difference between those two things oh that's hard because you, you gotta go deep but when you see something there's multiple steps involved in you actually like seeing what you're seeing so light has to hit your eyes basically and that's your eyes job is basically to kind of collect that light but for, for what you're seeing to mean anything to you, your eyes actually aren't really involved in that. It's kind of going to go through to the vision areas of your brain. And that's what's kind of going to decode that pattern of light. But, so, so you're saying yeah. the vision part of my brain. So 
my eyeballs are the vision part of my body. I don't see through my hands unless I'm from Pan's Labyrinth. <laughs> so I see through my eyeballs, but then do I have eyes in my brain? So I guess if, you, if you're saying that eyes are what's involved in vision, then yes, your brain's involved in vision. So sure, you've got eyes in your brain. Mm -hmm. But they don't look like eyes. They don't look like eyes. They just look like little bumps and valleys. And they're not going to do the exact same thing as your eyes. So they're not going to be able to collect the light. Um, obviously, they're not exposed physically to the rest of the world. But they're going to help you kind of decode what's in those patterns and kind of give some meaning to what you're seeing. So you were also talking about memory, how you can hit me in the head and I can have problems with memory. But if the eyeballs in my brain are to my real eyeballs, then is there a physical structure that I can sense with that can then communicate things to my brain memory-wise? So the memory parts of your brain, yeah, the memory parts of your brain are connected to all the sensory parts. So the parts that take in like auditory information, so like sounds uh, and any visual information, any kind of sensory information. So that's kind of the way that they are connected to the outside world. But the way that you experience memory, at least the way we understand it, it's just in your brain. There's no physical version of that. At least that's what we think right now. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it's, it's a little more abstract. Whereas yeah. I can point to my eyeballs and say, there's a relationship between the light coming into my eyeballs and then my, my brain's eyeballs making meaning out of that. There is no memory coming into my anything. Memory is just encapsulated in my brain. Yeah. So you, yeah, right. You need those sensory like extensions basically to get the, to get information into your brain. But once it's there, it's going to be, yeah, just, just in the brain. So memory doesn't exist without the senses. I would say probably that's probably true. It depends what you mean, but yeah. If there's no way for memories to enter my body from the outside and all the information in my memories is because the part of my brain related to memories connected to the sensory parts, then without any, any sensory information feeding into the memory part of my brain, it should just be an empty box. Yeah, so you can lose all like sensory input and still like retain the, the memories that, were, that you previously had. But if you start out with nothing, a memory is, is just associations between events and it can be associ associations between events or associations between certain events and the ways that they made you feel. So without any events, you can't you can't yeah there's nothing right mm -hmm. so if i have a memory and then i i stop seeing things i'll still be able to access my memories of things that i saw yes let's take a breather for a second try and consolidate everything that we've just listened to as we prepare to propel ourselves forward at a faster pace and a higher level of complexity I also just want to take a second to thank you for being here. This podcast was born out of a need to communicate, a desire to spread knowledge. And if you've been here since the beginning, if you've been someone who's listened to a lot of the episodes that have been released so far, heading towards 20, I appreciate you. If you've got any feedback, always looking to hear from you either on Instagram at abstractcast, Twitter at abstractcast or facebook.com slash abstractcast. Thank you in advance. Okay, so we can, I think, move up now. I'm going to imagine that I'm, let's say, maybe graduating from high school. I have a okay. high school science under my belt. I understand things like cells. Okay. So let's talk at a bit of a higher level of what's actually happening in the brain in terms of memory and how Alzheimer's and depression start to factor in here. 
So I'll start off with a story about this guy called HM who was having these seizures. And a long time ago, the way they would treat seizures is they would remove parts of the brain because the brain generally is overactive when you're having seizures. So they would actually surgically remove parts of the brain. After removing these parts of the brain, this patient had specific kinds of memory loss. He could no longer remember uh, or he can no longer form and then remember new memories, but he still had kind of these more remote memories and memories about specific things. So memories like facts, that kind of information he was still mostly, it was mostly intact in that individual, but he was not able to form new memories if they were of a certain type of memory. So for example, if you went with him to the park one day and looked at a fountain, and then the next day you asked this patient, where did we go yesterday? And was there anything that we saw there? The patient would not remember that you went to a park with them or that you saw a fountain. You're saying so, this was the case with, with HM. Exactly. New, yeah. experience that, new experiences he was having, seeing through his eyeballs and, and hearing things, none of, those, none of that information ended up making its way to the memory part of the brain. Exactly. And so there were other kinds of, of learning that he was able to accomplish, but there were this specific type of remembering new like events that had occurred, basically new personal uh, events or new things that he was learning, like uh, that people would tell him, I guess, verbally, he was no longer able to remember. And so this kind of clued us in. This was the first time where we were really clued into the certain parts of the brain that are involved in memory. So you said that there were certain things that he could learn or that, that he could commit to memory. What kinds of things were those, if not seeing fountains and remembering being at a park? So those are more things that you might call something like procedural memory. Which means? So that's more like learning an automatic or motor kind of task. Like sewing? I think that's a good example. Yeah. So I think one of the tasks was, so if you set up a mirror next to someone's hand and you ask them to, to look in the mirror and draw something only while they're looking at the mirror, not at the page, they usually won't do a, they won't do a, a, a good job when they're uh, looking at the mirror, but they'll get better over time. And so this was also the case with HM. He also got better over time, but he wouldn't remember that he had previously done this. So he, the events he forgot, but he did learn to get better at this task. That's kind of crazy, though, because it seems like your ability to see, the fact that you're being asked to look at a mirror, the fact that you can see things seems to be the piece of information that would lead to your memory. But this guy didn't have memory for things that he saw. So is there some kind of memory in my hand? So, yeah, so I think this this takes it to a more abstract level. So the, the division, I guess, in the classical, like, memory systems framework divides memory in terms of different categories based on, they call it either declarative memory or non-declarative memory, which procedural memory, which is this kind of uh, learning that HM still had intact. Hold on a second, because I'm, I'm still yeah. in high school and these are new words for me. So I just sure. want to make sure I know what these are. So declarative, which is, which is what? So declarative memory might be what we were talking about before, like uh, remembering new events and forming new associations between, it can be, it can be between concepts between things that you do already know, so all, all stuff like that, remembering where something is, um, when an event occurred, whereas non-declarative memory is this more kind of automatic motor learning. Things that I can't actually like, tell you a story about. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Like I can't really tell you how it is that I'm drawing an image by looking into a mirror. It, I, I just can do it. Whereas it. I can explain something that I've seen in a park, like a fountain. That's it. That's it. So let's connect HM now. Let's get the big picture. Did HM have Alzheimer's? 
So HM did not have Alzheimer's, but I guess the point of that story is really that by doing the surgery and removing this specific part of the brain, where we were able to kind of get clued in as to what part of the brain is involved in what kind of memory. And this also gave us the idea that there are different kinds of memory, so the two we were mentioning before. But even in this declarative group, there are different kinds. So, for example, there might be a memory for just specific facts, which you can call semantic memory, or memory for events that kind of have a temporal, so a time or a spatial component to them, and that you might call episodic memory. Okay, like an episode of television, yeah. Sure, sure, exactly. Without any of that, we wouldn't be able to look at which parts of the brain are supporting which kinds of memory. And so that's basically what my research was looking at, looking at in healthy young adults, does the size of a, of a certain brain region tell you how good someone's going to be at a specific kind of memory task? Mm-hmm. Because the size means kind of like more, more resources, more like energy to put towards a task. Yeah, yeah. So that's something that's probably uh, in contention. And some people might say the opposite, the smaller the brain region, the more efficient the connections it has. But yeah, one of the interpretations might be that a bigger brain region has more connections, um, more resources, more neurons. So a neuron is a brain cell if you're still in high school. I learned about those last year, yeah. Cool, nice, nice. It's a good high school you're going to. Um, in grade um, nine. <laughs> When I was in grade nine, I warned about the uh, eukaryotic cells. Oh my God. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So just a quick, quick mini recap. We have the brain. It's this big blob in our head. Information comes through our sensory organs, and then it gets kind of amassed at, in a specific part of the brain, which you'll tell us about shortly. Yeah. Is there only one part of the brain? This is a, a preemptive question. What I want to answer, is there only one part of the brain where memories are stored? Because you said there are three types right? We have like the, the facts and then we have the personal experiences and then we have the nonverbal stuff as I called it. So I'd like to know if those are all stored in the same part of the brain. And then let's talk about how Alzheimer's now is different than cutting out a part of the brain, which was the case with HM. All right. So yeah, in terms of uh, where memories are stored and which kind of brain parts or brain regions are involved in memory, I think the views on this are mostly shifting towards a kind of a more network view where basically the idea is that there's not one brain region that does one thing. It's more likely that some kind of cognition or behavior emerges from the interaction between multiple brain regions. This is something we're talking about consciousness right now. Because you use the word emergence, and to me that's a word I've heard used with, with consciousness, where consciousness emerges from brain activity. So memory emerges from brain activity. Yeah, I think probably everything does. <laughs> sure. Oh, okay, okay, perfect. Everything emerges from brain activity, except for light, because light emerges from the sun and then enters our eyeballs. So technically, things do come outside of our brain. Right. Everything. Uh, yeah, sure. So, so any, any human behavior, I, I could say. That's, that's more what I meant. Yeah, yeah. Human yeah. behavior. You said here first, human behavior arises or emerges from brain activity. Yes. Perfect. That's going to be like the slogan of today's episode. Cool. All right. Great. Nice. Human behavior emerges from brain activity. Amazing. So how do Alzheimer's and depression change brain activity and supposedly change behavior due to that? What are the mechanisms? Okay. So I think if, yeah, tying HM to Alzheimer's, I guess it gives us like a nice starting point. So we know memories were involved in a structure called the hippocampus and surrounding regions within this medial temporal lobe. So if you think about the temporal lobe of your brain, it's the one right by your temporal bone. And the medial part basically is the part kind of closer to the inside of your head. I'm, I'm motioning with my hands now. I realize that's not going to help. But towards like if I was to cut my body in half bilaterally, 
exactly like symmetric halves in between my two eyes right down the center and yeah. near where, where my ears are exactly so yeah closer towards the center and yeah and your temporal lobe that's where the hippocampus is and some other related structures uh, that we could talk about more but those structures were what were kind of removed in patient hm and so that pointed us towards those regions uh, supporting memory and so in alzheimer's there are issues in the functioning of those brain regions and in, in other regions as well it's kind of across an entire network but those regions are where pathology might start okay so there are presumably specific names for these regions sure things, yeah. things can definitely blow up here with with, yeah. with new terminology if we name every single one so let's maybe try and keep it to a minimum in terms of specific names but still refer to different regions if that's possible. Sure, yeah. So we can, we can generally, I think, stick with the hippocampus if we would, don't want to get too specific, but the hippocampus and a close region, which is called the entorhinal cortex, mm-hmm. which kind of links the hippocampus with the cortex, like kind of the rest of the, the higher level brain regions. Mm-hmm. Those regions show atrophy, so they, they decrease in size in Alzheimer's disease and in depression. Okay. Um, and so- This is the key. Yeah, so I think the hippocampus is is obviously critical in both. The entorhinal cortex is more of a, this like epicenter in Alzheimer's disease. So there's ways to measure certain like metabolites in Alzheimer's disease. This is not my area of expertise. Uh, most of my work was on like basic memory and cognitive neuroscience, but I can tell you a bit about this. So there's there are metabolites that have shown to build up in early Alzheimer's disease in the entorhinal cortex. And metabolites um, is literally just byproducts of cell activity. Yeah, exactly. But stuff that you might not want in your brain, stuff that's going to basically disrupt uh, normal functioning. Okay. But are metabolites always produced and then just kind of flushed away? Yeah. And then some of them get stuck? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so that's the bad stuff. Yeah. Exactly. So like you said, in, in everyone, like it's typical that we'll have metab- like all these different kinds of metabolites um, in our brain. And it's just kind of an issue of moderation. So if enough are flushed out, then you'll be fine. But once there's a, a buildup of, of too many, that's when you get this cycle to start that'll then kind of lead to pathology that's like related to Alzheimer's disease and the cognitive impairment that will also follow that. So we have buildup then you're saying of these metabolites or these kind of remnants of cell activity that build up in the brain over time. Presumably as we get older, our brain is, is less able to kind of flush them out, right? So we have more buildup. Yeah, yeah. I'm aware that similar things happen in our heart and people can get surgeries to clean out or get stents for their arteries so that blood can flow better. Are there any processes that we have, any kind of experimental procedures where we can actually manually clean out these metabolites? That's a great question. Again, this isn't my main area of expertise, so I don't know too well. Like, I don't think it would be possible. So the way this naturally works is there's this fluid in our brain called cerebrospinal fluid, which is produced in the ventricles of our brain, which are basically these giant holes. We, I have holes in my brain? What? Lots of big holes in your brain, yeah. And they How get much bigger. smarter would I be if I didn't have holes in my brain? <laughs> Uh, um, lots smarter for sure. But so those, yeah, if you had Alzheimer's disease, those holes, or if you were just older, generally those holes get pretty big. And if you see some brain scans of, of individuals with like big holes, usually you're like, ah, this person's probably not doing too well. Wait a second. Is there a difference between the holes produced by Alzheimer's and the holes that are just the ventricles? Yeah. So it's just the ventricles that kind of enlarge in Alzheimer's disease and in aging, in, in healthy aging as well. So you would think that there's more of this cerebrospinal fluid to, to clean things out more. Yeah, true, true. But I think, yeah, so the idea really isn't that it's produced in those ventricles, but it, it's washed over the brain to, and it kind of picks up these metabolites and flushes them out, basically. It's like a brain car wash. 
It's like a brain car wash. Yeah. That's so cool. My brain's in a car wash. You hear that, (laughs) listeners? Your brain's in a car wash right now. Whatever you're doing, put your pencil down. Just enjoy the fact that your brain's in a car wash right now. (laughs) And we're in break number two. Hope you're enjoying things so far. We're entering the last leg of today's episode. Just a quick note, if you've noticed so far that there are a couple of episodes that aren't numbered like the other ones, namely the current chapter one, chapter two, and chapter three that you see in the list of episodes, those are bonus rap songs that summarize the course material for an undergraduate psychology course at McGill University. It's a product that I'm working on right now and will hopefully be able to build on in the future. So keep your eyes peeled for more of these rap song summaries. Otherwise, if the episodes are numbered normally, you can expect those to be exactly as they always are, a new graduate student on the podcast every week. Let's get back into it. So as you'd mentioned before, we have this thing called the entorhinal cortex, which kind of relates depression and memory. But from what I know, memory is more your thing. So we'll kind of stick to that. So we're, we're kind of really en- entering the highest levels here. So you can just you can just bring us home your PhD right now. You said you're focusing on the neural correlates of episodic memory. So we're specifically talking about the kinds of memories that you form that you can talk about, things that are personal, like going to a park and seeing a fountain. So far from what you've read, what do you know about where those memories are stored and how our brain connects those memories to the rest of the, the whole network? Yeah, sure. So I, my master's work mostly focused on those regions we were talking about within the medial temporal lobe. And so there's this interesting idea kind of about an anterior to posterior division of function or like a functional gradient within the medial temporal lobes. So anterior is more towards the front of your head, posterior is more towards the back. And so generally it's thought that these more anterior regions within the medial temporal lobe, but also within a larger network are proposed to support the memory of, I guess, individual items. So you can think about this as like a specific object, the memory for a specific thing you saw once, or the memory for a concept, a kind of more abstract memory. Whereas posterior regions are proposed to support a a kind of like relational or binding memory. So between the memory for uh, multiple things that are related together, this can also be thought of as like spatial memory. So where you are in relation to like like a cognitive map that you might have in your head. And so uh, the work that I was doing was using this episodic memory task, which was, could kind of dissociate these two kinds of memory. So this more kind of like item memory, and then this other kind of source or context memory, which is what we call the uh, memory function that the posterior regions are, supposed to, are proposed to support. Um, and what we were looking at basically is how the size of regions within the medial temporal lobe differentially related to these two kinds of memory. So we don't have this like hard dichotomous split where the front of the brains is, is involved in more of these like conceptual memories and the back is more spatial kind of stuff. There isn't a hard break. It's just we see more activity on certain tasks relating to each one split between the front and the back somewhat. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So it's not a hard break, but, but there are these differences. Yeah. Yeah. Why would we find this? Oh, good question. Now, I'm not sure why the study was conducted, but there's a really cool study that you might know about that was looking at taxi drivers 
uh, in London. Oh uh, well, yeah, we heard of those guys. Yeah, has someone has someone talked about it on the podcast before? No, no, not yet. So for the listeners, uh, London taxi drivers, get ready because this is a big one. This is, yeah, this this is, is a, very cool. It's a really cool study. So Eleanor McGuire from UCL was looking at the structure of the hippocampus, and to become a taxi driver in London, it's it's a lot of work. So you have to pass this test called the knowledge that takes a long time to study for. You basically have to develop this like cognitive map of the whole city, knowing where like when you're in one location, what landmarks will be around you, what other routes you can take. And so like we were talking about before, this kind of memory should probably be supported by these more posterior regions within the medial temporal lobe. So what Dr. McGuire did and her colleagues, they basically scanned the brains of many of these taxi drivers. They scanned taxi drivers that, that had passed the tests, taxi drivers that were in the process, taxi drivers that had failed, as well as like healthy controls. And so what they found is that the taxi drivers that had passed the test compared to just people who took regular everyday people had this enlarged posterior hippocampus. Basically the hippocampus, you can think about it in two segments, an anterior hippocampus and a posterior hippocampus. And so they had an enlarged posterior hippocampus and a smaller anterior hippocampus compared to control individuals. And that finding has spurred on a ton of new research in this field, including my own work. And it's just a super interesting finding. So I haven't read this paper, but I just kind of want to hypothesize something super quickly. You can tell me if it's correct or incorrect or anything in between. The back of the brain, way at the back, we've got the occipital lobe, which is where the visual centers are. Sure. Now, sure. if you need to have a map of a city, that to me seems like a very visuospatial kind of thing, very visual specifically. So is it possible that the reason why we have so much larger hippocampuses in these London taxi drivers in the back of the hippocampus is because it's closer to the visual centers? So like we need to recruit more connections there or is that just kind of a coincidence? No, it's not a coincidence. Good job. That's great. So like I had meant, I was mentioning before, obviously these regions are important for memory, but like in the hippocampus and these other medial temporal lobe regions, but memory is not just there. There's, there's a whole brain system that supports the retrieval and encoding of specific memories. So like you're saying, more posterior regions do display more connectivity, like a stronger connections with more posterior regions, not specific, not only more posterior regions. There's a, the network isn't necessarily shifted that way or framed that way. But it, it does happen, so happen that the posterior hippocampus uh, and the other posterior medial temporal regions are more connected with the occipital regions. That's great. That makes sense. I yeah, like when things make sense. Otherwise, we're just kind of sitting here picking our noses. For sure. Yeah. I mean, generally, when things are closer together, they're more connected. So it makes sense. The, the, the framework that's been, there's been a few. One of them that I like is this kind of perceptual versus conceptual systems. So the, these posterior medial temporal lobe regions show more connections with perceptual regions, like you're saying, visual regions, um, as well as some other kinds of attention regions, whereas the, the anterior regions are more connected with conceptual regions, like in the frontal lobe. Got it. I want to bring this back to the, to the clinical populations. Obviously, London taxi drivers are not people who are suffering from Alzheimer's disease, or at least we hope not, because we've got to get from point A to point B to point C, et cetera. So how are you going to be extending this research, fascinating research on differential size in the hippocampus by looking at clinical populations? And what are you expecting to find? Sure. Yeah. So I guess the taxi driver work is not something that I extend, I, I'm, I'm hoping to extend to clinical populations. That's the work that I've already kind of done for my master's. And that was looking at extending that work to healthy young adults. So a non-specialized population. There, there have been a few studies looking at the associations between volume and behavior 
in the medial temporal lobe, specifically looking at different kinds of memory. But a lot of them look across age, um, where effects are kind of less subtle because there's more just natural atrophy across the lifespan. Um, and then in like disease populations like Alzheimer's or individuals with mild cognitive impairment or depression. So my master's work was really focusing on seeing if we can see this association in healthy young adults. And do we? Yeah, so we, we did. Now, this, I think, depends a lot on the kind of task you use, but my supervisor is an expert in creating these kinds of tasks. And so we basically had participants complete this kind of like object association task. So they had to like, they were shown an object in a certain quadrant of the screen while they were being scanned. And they had to remember not only the object, but the specific location on the screen where it was. And then after a, a break where we took another kind of brain scan, they were kind of shown pictures, some that they had previously seen and some new ones. And they had to indicate if they think the item is, is new or if they think the item is old and they can tell us kind of where it was. Or they can also tell us, I think this item is old, but I don't know where it was. And that kind of helps us separate those two kinds of memory, that item memory where they'll tell us, oh, yes, I remember seeing this giraffe before, but I have no idea where I saw it. So that would be an example of item memory. Or they might tell us, oh, I saw this giraffe on the top left corner, and that would be an example of source memory. Okay. And then we yeah, so we can kind of look at the relationship between their performance on the task and the size of these brain regions. Okay, so that was, that was the master stuff? Exactly, yeah, yeah. But from what I understood, your current PhD research is continuing from that in clinical populations. Right, so yeah, so we'll look at, a kind of, I guess we'll use similar techniques, but we'll look at different kinds of memory, hopefully. So in terms of depression, what we're looking at is autobiographical memory. And so that's going to differ from episodic memory, which is this other study where you're really just kind of presenting like lab stimuli. So it's not really a naturalistic form of memory. You're not in everyday life kind of seeing a giraffe in a certain spot on the screen and ever, you never have to really choose to remember where you saw it. Right. Uh, and so autobiographical memory is more about past personal specific events. and much Much harder to control for those though. Yeah. So it's a different way that we kind of acquire that information. But what we know, which is super interesting, is that in depression individuals will have a harder time making specific memories. So there's kind of four mnemonic horsemen of depression. So there's four kinds of parts of autobiographical memory that are affected by depression. So one of them is kind of this idea of over general memory. So they'll have trouble recalling or retrieving specific events that had happened to them, and they'll kind of make more categorical or over general memories. That's one of the, I'm, I'm just curious what those four are now. Like yeah, for sure. For sure. So one of them is also the impoverished access to positive memories. So now we're also looking at not only like a general autobiographical memory, but also the valence associated with it. So if it's positive or negative. So the other two are, is just like an altered relationship to emotional memories generally. And then the fourth one is going to be a biased recollection of negative memories. If you recollect something more, it's going to be more likely that it's negative. Oh, biased towards the exactly. negative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then what's interesting there. So in depression, also in Alzheimer's, females are more likely or more at risk for developing these disorders. And there's, it's also been shown that there are sex differences in these cognitive processes. So for example, females will show a correlation between the severity of their depression and the specificity of generally of their memories and also of specifically negative ones, whereas males won't show those correlations with severity. And this is something that you're trying to figure out more in, in detail why this is. 
Exactly. So we want to look again at these same brain regions and look at why are those differences apparent between men and women? And are these biomarkers, basically, as we were talking about, the hippocampus shrinks in depression? Is this consistent across men and women? And does this have a relationship with cognition? Amazing. This is a perfect place to end this episode because this is really what we are here at Abstract, Abstract colon, the future of science. And given that we caught you at the beginning of your PhD, you are currently working on the future of science. This is not just the past of science, what already exists in science, but this is what is going to happen moving forward. So I hope to be in touch then and see what it is that you have come up with and discovered along your journey along this PhD. Thank you so much for being here and for sharing everything. Yeah, thank you, Jeremy. This was really fun. So I want to hear from you, the listeners wherever it is that you comment or interact with this podcast, Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, what you thought about this new format of running through the three levels of complexity. So with that, we'll call it a day. Thanks again, Jamie. This was super fun. Have a great afternoon. Thanks. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, you can check us out at abstractcast on Instagram. If you have any feedback, please feel free to leave a comment on the post for the current or any previous episode that you might have listened to. Or if you're a graduate student and you would like to be on the podcast yourself, you can drop us a line at abstractcast at gmail.com. This podcast will be released weekly on Sundays and is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much everywhere else you're going to find podcasts. So feel free to check us out around the internet. Until then, take it easy. Take it easy.